are continuing on here in uh, this section of the Gospels. Um, We were in Matthew last week. We're going to be in Luke uh, this week, but um, we're still in the same narrative, um, which I'll explain here in just a little bit. Um, So in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, there are a few stories that are connected in all three in sequence with one another. Um, And some of those stories are the ones that we're in this morning. So, first of all, Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, right? Jim preached on that uh, just a few weeks ago. Then, uh, in that same story, Jesus predicts that he is going to suffer and that he's going to die. If you remember, uh, Peter has a reaction to this because he had not imagined that this would be part of the story of Jesus. Then, Jesus makes a radical call to discipleship that we talked about last week. Take up your cross and follow me. And then immediately following that is what we're looking at today. The church has historically called this the transfiguration, which is a fancy word to talk about how Jesus changes on this day in front of the disciples, how for a moment they see uh, him in a different way than they had ever seen him before. All of these stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are connected together in sequence, which tells us that uh, these are some of the oldest stories that the church was telling each other over and over again. Even before the Gospels were written, these stories were being told in sequence again and again and again, and then were eventually uh, recorded down for us. They're all connected. Now, all of these stories, including the one we're going to look at today, have to do with Jesus's identity. This is what Matthew, Mark, and Luke are drilling down on, the identity of Jesus. They're all asking the same question, who is Jesus, and demonstrating to us who he truly is. I said this last week, this is a roller coaster ride of emotion for the disciples, because on one hand, they're seeing him heal and deliver, and they're seeing the kingdom breaking in. Then Jesus is talking about his own death. Then he tells them that they need to take up their cross and follow, and then... um, He appears in glory in front of them in this passage. It's just like up and down, up and down. I mean, I imagine their emotional life is going through a bit of turmoil here. And I said last week that there's this tension in following Jesus between Jesus as our overcoming victorious one and Jesus as the suffering servant, right? And which is he? Well, he's both. Well, how does it fit together? That's less important. What's more important is just that he's both of those things at the same time. And and we're called upon to recognize that. Also, we could ask of ourselves as followers of Jesus, are we cross people or are we Easter people? You know, are we suffering people or are we victorious people? And the answer is both at the same time. And probably in a gathering like this, we are experiencing one of those realities more than the other. You know, we may be at different places, and that's okay because both are true to what it means to follow Jesus. Well, this passage is interesting this morning because it references the cross, references Jesus' death, but this is a glory moment for Jesus and the disciples. So we're going to read this together beginning in Luke 9. I'm actually going to begin in verse 27. If you'd stand to your feet in honor of God's word, let's read this together. This is the words of Jesus, beginning in verse 27. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. 
About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. You can be seated. I feel like this morning I have the main point to end all main points. It's really simple, but it's also where we're going to drill down this morning, that Jesus is the unrivaled main point of everything. Amen? (laughs) Jesus is the unrivaled. That's going to be an important word for us this morning unrivaled main point of everything. I want to start before we dig into this passage by just saying that Peter and the other disciples saw what happened on this day with Jesus as a real event. Visions uh, happen in the New Testament, but this was more than a vision. Um, Peter saw something that was very real in front of him uh, when when Jesus appeared to him in glory in this way. As a matter of fact, much later in his life, Peter wrote this, in one of his letters, in 1 Peter 1.16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter is referencing what we just read about in Luke 9. You know, he's referencing this day. So this got seared into his memory. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him. From the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter is saying, look, we saw something that was so real. Um, We didn't make up these stories. God revealed to us something on this day about who his son uh, really was, who his identity was. Okay, I think one of the most helpful things I can do this morning is just walk you through this passage Uh, real quick and point out some things, and then um, I want to to point out something in particular related to Jesus being the unrivaled main point. First of all, in verse 27, it might be helpful if you follow along in your Bible, but in verse 27, I started there with Jesus saying, truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not see death before they see the kingdom of God. People have wondered, well, what did Jesus mean when he said that to his disciples, that some of them would see the kingdom? Well, The passage we just read was a sighting of the kingdom, right? So Jesus told them, look, take up your cross, follow me, but some of you are going to see the kingdom even before you taste death. And so what they are seeing in the transfiguration of Jesus is a view of the kingdom that is more intense than what they have seen up until this point. Uh, Luke says in verse 28, that it was eight days after Jesus had said this to them. Mark says it's six days. Luke says it was about eight days. Um, Both of them are are saying it was about a week um, after Jesus had said these things. 
And then Jesus takes them up on to this mountain. In verse uh, 28 and 29, Luke points out something that's really important. And it's that all of what we just read about Jesus appearing to them this way happened in the context of prayer. Um, In Luke's gospel in particular, prayer is a big theme. And I just want to point out that it was in the moment of Jesus getting away with Peter, James, and John to pray that this manifestation of glory happened in front of them. Um, I think that's notable because whatever prayer is, it is this thing that creates almost like this portal between heaven and earth. You know, it's in the context of prayer that Peter, James, and John see the kingdom. And church, I want to tell you, it's still in the context of prayer that we often see the kingdom. You know, we'll be gathering together in just a few weeks for the College of Prayer. I hope you're able to come. I am certain that we're going to get a glimpse of the kingdom in that time. And it's not because the event, you know, is so great in of itself. It's because this is what God has designed prayer to be. You know, I get distracted by all kinds of things in ministry, discouraged by all kinds of things in life. But when I get into God's presence in prayer, either by myself or with you, I remember who I am. I remember who God is. I remember what's really important. I can see clear, you know, where he wants us to go next. And we only see in part, but we get a clear picture of what the kingdom is like as we pray together. Uh, Luke describes this change that Jesus went through. He says that his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning, that his face changed. It's interesting, Matthew and Mark use a little bit of different language to try to describe the same thing. Matthew says that Jesus' face was like the sun. Mark says that Jesus' clothes were bleached whiter than anyone could have possibly bleached them naturally. Matthew says that his clothes were like white light. It's interesting, Matthew, Mark, and Luke themselves are really trying to search for language, you know, for what happened here, um, to try to describe exactly what it was the disciples experienced. But one thing is very clear What Peter, James, and John are seeing here is the future glory of Jesus revealed in the present. They are getting a glimpse of the resurrected Jesus before his resurrection. They are getting a glimpse of Jesus the King, the victorious one, before he even suffers and dies. They're seeing something about the future that is true about Jesus even in the present. I want to point out here that there's all of this Old Testament imagery that's happening in this passage that is so rich and deep so that when the early disciples reflected back on what happened on this day, they would have made all this connection to Israel's history. You know, especially Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. So this happens on a mountain, and and God appeared to Israel on a mountain in the desert in Mount Sinai. All of this talk about glory and clouds and lightning and the fear that it creates in the people that are seeing it, all of this would have reminded them of how God had interacted with his people in the Old Testament. In verse 30, Moses and Elijah appear and begin to talk with Jesus. Um, This is important because in the Jewish way of thinking, truth is established by the testimony of two witnesses, right? So two people need to give witness to something for it to be viewed as valid. Well, not only are there two witnesses here, but there are two amazing witnesses, right? Moses and Elijah, 
two individuals that any good God-fearing Jew would respect. And there's a lot of things I could say about Moses and Elijah appearing here, but uh, one thing I just want to point out is that in Jesus' day, it was common to refer to the scriptures that were written up until that point, which the Old Testament in our Bibles, it was common to refer to them as the law and the prophets. Well, the law came through Moses, and Elijah is a foremost prophet. And so part of the imagery that's happening here is that God the Father is saying all of Scripture, the law and the prophets, is pointing to this one, to the identity of Jesus. In verse 31, we find out that Elijah and Moses are talking to Jesus about his departure what will ha- that will happen in Jerusalem. That word departure, in a very plain sense, can just mean death. But in the Greek... The word there is exodus, which is interesting with Moses standing there because they're talking about his death, but they're also talking about what's going to be accomplished through his death. That is, at the cross, Jesus is going to liberate humanity from the curse of sin and Satan and death just as Moses liberated Israel from Egyptian oppression. This is what Jesus is going to accomplish at the cross. Now, as this plays out, we find out in Luke's gospel in verses 32 and 33 that the disciples were sleepy. We find out from Luke that this happened at night. The disciples had drifted off to sleep. Jesus is in prayer. This happens. And they wake up, and it takes them a minute you know, to even realize what's going on. And then their senses are trying to process what's happening. And in that time, Peter makes a suggestion. And the suggestion is that they build some structures and stay on the mountain. Now I'm going to come back to that in just a few minutes. But as he's talking, this cloud appears, envelops them. In the Old Testament, the appearance of a cloud is very connected to the weightiness of God's glory coming on someone. An example of this is when the glory of God filled the temple with King Solomon. If you remember that story, a cloud came on the people that couldn't even stand up under it. They ended up flat on their faces in the presence of God. So they are filled with this sense of fear because they see that the presence of God is coming around them in a very strong way. And then they hear this voice come from heaven, say, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. This ought to remind you of something else in Jesus's life, right? His baptism. Remember, at the beginning of Jesus's public ministry, um, after he's baptized, the spirit comes on him in a special way in the presence of people. And a voice comes from heaven. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And when we preached on that, probably over a year ago now at Crestmont, One thing we said is that from that point on, Jesus executes his ministry from God's approval and not for his father's approval, right? The father gives his approval, and out of that comes all of Jesus' ministry. Well, the father does that with Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry, and now he does it with Jesus at the beginning of his journey to the cross. And it's the same thing. Jesus is going to the cross not for his father's approval, but from his father's approval, and the father is testifying to that. Now, what I really want to focus on this morning is verse 33, Peter's suggestion. I love how Luke notes here, it's probably in parentheses in your Bible, that Peter did not know what he was saying. You know, Mark says that Peter was afraid, and that's why he just kind of stumbled to try to find words. He did not know what he was saying. That lets us know that whatever Peter was trying to suggest here was the wrong thing, right? Peter didn't get it right here, okay? 
He did not know what he was saying. So what is wrong about Peter's request here? Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. What's wrong with Peter's request? Well, the way I've normally heard this passage preached is that Peter is wrong because he's wanting to grasp on to this holy moment and hold on to it instead of go down the mountain back to normal life. And listen, there's something right about that because Jesus does have to go to the cross, right? He can't stay on the mountain. He's got to go to the cross, and Jesus has already told Peter that. But here's what I find wrong with viewing that passage that way. Listen, Peter wants to stay in this moment because Peter's heart is encountering the presence of God. Peter's heart was made for the presence, and so was yours. So was mine. And I just don't see anywhere in Scripture where someone's hunger for the presence of God is put down as something that's wrong. Now, sometimes Christians find really religious ways to talk about their apathy, you know? Like, well, I don't, I don't need an experience of God's presence because I've had enough. Well, listen, that's, that's just not true. We will spend eternity in God's presence, always drinking more and more from the presence of God. So I'm not surprised at all that in this glorious moment, Peter just wants to stay, you know, because his heart was made for it. But there is something wrong in what he says, and, and here's what I think it is. His suggestion is to put up three shelters, which may seem odd to us. It's like, really, Peter, you want to build some sheds right now? That's like your idea? But listen, in the Old Testament, God had instituted this feast, this feast of tabernacles. It was meant to commemorate Israel's journey through the desert to the promised land. And the way they would celebrate, among other things, is they would build these shelters uh, for their families to live in as the feast went on to remember how they had wandered through the desert. So Peter's suggestion here is that they go ahead into worship mode. Now, that's not a bad suggestion. He wants to go into worship. He says, you know what? Let's go ahead and begin this feast. Let's do this Feast of Tabernacles. And he wants to do it to honor what's going on. But here's the mistake. He doesn't just want to build one shelter to commemorate one person. He wants to build three to commemorate three people. But only one of them is the Son of God. See, two of them, even though they themselves are showing up in glorious splendor, it says in Luke, are only God's servants. One of them is God's son. And this is why Peter is wrong in his suggestion. See, God is still revealing, the Father is still revealing to Peter who Jesus is. He's saying, Peter, Jesus isn't like Moses. He's not like Elijah. He is unique. You're getting closer, but you're not realizing exactly what's going on here. He is unique, and this is why this cloud envelops them. And if, if, it's like, if God can make it any more explicit, he says, this one, pay attention to him. This is my son. You listen to him. See, the question here, or the issue that God is getting at, is that he does not want anyone, not even Moses and Elijah, rivaling Jesus' place. So what this passage becomes for us in Luke chapter 9 is this big, fat exclamation point on the unique identity of Jesus. That Jesus is the unrivaled main point of everything. I have this diagram up on the screen. 
Listen, we see some things in this passage that are all pointing to Jesus as the main point. Um, You know, Israel's history, represented by Moses. God is saying all that he did in the Old Testament is pointing to the identity of his son, Jesus. Um, All of what happened in Jerusalem, the holy city. You know, think about all that God did there. In the Old Testament, the temple is built there. Sacrifices are offered there. Kings ruled there. Prophets minister there. But it all points to the identity of Jesus. All of it is meant to point to who Jesus is. Elijah um, was someone associated in the minds of the Jewish people with Israel's future, that God would send someone like Elijah at the end of time. And so even Israel's future, even the people of God, their future is tied in with the identity of Jesus. All of Scripture, the law and the prophets, is to point us to Jesus. As a matter of fact, we read our Bibles incompletely if we don't see on every page that they are pointing us to Jesus, right? And by the way, not just pointing us to information about Jesus as if that were enough, But the words of this book lead us to an encounter with the living Christ, right? That's where we're going. That's where scripture takes us. And we fall short if we we don't see that. All of the, I'll just call it glory phenomena, lightning and clouds and all of this stuff, is, is not an end to and of itself. It's meant to point to the identity of Jesus. Remember, this whole passage in Luke 9 happens in the context of prayer. All true prayer has as its end, its goal, Jesus and his exaltation. And I could add in some other things, which I did on the screen behind me. Creation, right? Creation is made by Jesus, sustained by Jesus, and it points to Jesus. The gifts of the Spirit. Listen, here here at Crestmont, we... We are Trinitarians. We believe that God is one in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? That's what the the church has confessed. But the founder of our movement, he wrote this hymn that we often sing even here at Crestfront, Jesus Only, Jesus Ever. You know that song? Jesus Only, Jesus Ever, Jesus All in All we sing. Well, what's he saying? He's not saying that we don't believe in the Trinity. We do, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what he's pointing out is that both the Father and the Spirit and especially, all oh, they are co-equal, equally God. But somehow their attention comes on to Jesus. The Father lifts up the Son, Scripture tells us, and gives him the name that is above every name. And it is the job of the Holy Spirit through the church to exalt Jesus. Listen, how do you know if a gathering is filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, it's not if what's happening in it makes you comfortable or uncomfortable. It's not if that's what happened in the church that you grew up in or what's in your experience. Here's how you know. Does it exalt Jesus? Because any spirit-filled gathering will exalt Jesus every time. And listen, this is one reason why, as a church, we insist on being open to the full ministry of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is given to the church to exalt the Son. And that's the main point. So to put out the fire of the Spirit because we're uncomfortable or it's new to us or whatever, is to put out the activity of the Spirit in exalting Jesus. And there is no point to what we're doing if Jesus isn't exalted. 
It's what the Spirit does day in and day out to exalt Jesus. I know I'm just a couple minutes over, but I'm just going to wrap this up. Jesus is the unrivaled main point of everything. Listen, at the end of this, the cloud disappears, and there is Jesus alone, it says in 936. That's how this ends. Jesus was there alone. And I think this means more than just physically alone. I think alone in the hearts of the disciples. Jesus was alone, unrivaled, unequaled. Listen, guys, the main point of everything we do has to do with Jesus. As a church, I want to say this to you, church, just as we wrap up here, that as a church, a place is never more like heaven than when Jesus is the main point of that place. You hear me? A place is never more like heaven when the affections of everyone in the room are turned to Jesus with a focus and an intensity so that he is unrivaled and unequaled because that's what heaven is like. You know, earlier this week, I had a time of prayer and I just got this picture in my mind of, of me looking up at, at Jesus and I was deep in worship. I was worshiping him. And there was all this stuff in ministry happening behind me, all this stuff in our church. We do so many amazing things. I just love seeing all the things that you do. And all of this ministry activity was happening behind me. Um, it was like I just heard the Lord say, you just look at me. You know, all that stuff will happen. But you just look at me. Look fully on me. Because that's the main point. Listen, what that means is, do you see how Peter wants to construct things next to Jesus that are good, but rival him? And listen, this means that as a church, we must always, always, it's my responsibility and it's yours, deconstruct the things that we build that rival Jesus. I mean, if a program rivals Jesus, it needs deconstructed, right? Listen, if, if anything is getting the affection of our heart as a church that doesn't even put Jesus below, but just tries to be on an equal playing field with him, it needs deconstructed. Because Jesus is the big main point of what we do. As individuals, I said this last week, that all in discipleship is discipleship that's free of fear, right? We were talking about that last week. That when you decide to take up your cross and follow and go all in, that it has a way of evaporating a lot of fears out of our lives because we already settled a lot of those fears in God's presence. Well, I want to tell you, when Jesus becomes the unrivaled main point of our lives, um, decisions become a lot more clear. You know, in the early Christian Missionary Alliance, I love this story. Uh, sometimes God's Spirit would so strongly move in a gathering that there would be weeping for the nations. People would just begin to weep. They'd never even been to these nations. This is the late 1800s, travel is difficult, but they would begin to weep for the nations. And then when they passed the offering, people would begin to take off all their jewelry and to put it into the offering. I mean, what was most valuable to them, and it wasn't going to the pastor or to the church building, it was going to the nations, to these hurting places. Why do people do stuff like that? Because when Jesus is the main point, it becomes a lot easier to let go of stuff, doesn't it, church? When Jesus is the main point, it becomes a lot easier to sacrifice. Am I going to live or am I going to die? doesn't matter so long as Jesus is glorified in either. Right? Am I going to be the center of attention or am I going to be in the background? It doesn't matter so long as Jesus is glorified. 
Is this going to hurt or is this going to be easy? It doesn't matter so long as Jesus is glorified because he is the main point. And so even in our lives, things rival. Listen, my wife's birthday was yesterday. I love Chelsea. I just love her so much. I mean, more than anyone on this earth. Um, But listen, she does not rival Jesus in my life. And I ought not rival Jesus in hers, right? Because all that's going to create is a kind of bondage in our marriage that's going to hold us back from our destiny, right? Listen, I was saying this last week. I want Jesus to have the main, to have the place of primacy in our family because decisions become a lot easier then, you know? Decisions become a lot easier and free of fear. And I just want to say this. If you're newer here with us or if all this Jesus stuff is new to you this morning, listen, I just want to say, we hold out to you Jesus or we hold out nothing at all as a church. Listen, we don't hold, Crestmont Alliance Church isn't going to come up with a program that is going to be worth your time. Do you understand what I'm saying? Listen, either it's Jesus or it's nothing. You don't want the pastoral staff here holding out to you our best ideas. Trust me. What we hold out to you is Jesus. I was talking last week about our youth and children. We hold out to them Jesus, church, or we hold out to them nothing at all. And this is a matter of prayer, isn't it? Because it's in the context of prayer that the kingdom gets revealed. We hold out Jesus to them or we hold out nothing at all. It doesn't matter. Listen, there are churches all over this country who have far more resources than we do, doing amazing work, and God bless them. But it doesn't matter how flashy the programs are. Their kids are leaving the church in droves, just like it's happening other places. Because at the end of the day, this is about encounter with Jesus, not how flashy our programs are. And listen, the people that we've hired in the positions we have at Crestmont, John and Jemira, they would quickly tell you, that they may not be the most experienced. They may not, you know, have the best ideas. They would quickly tell you that. But listen, who I want on our staff and who I want in leadership at this church are people who get this, that the main point is Jesus. They have a desperate, I'm in rooms with John and Jemiah when we're praying. We're saying, God, either you show up or this doesn't happen. Either you show up or our kids aren't going to follow. You know, I would rather have people like that any day than people with the best ideas in the world, but don't get this, that Jesus is the main point. Amen?